Peace, peace, and good morning. I am incredibly excited to reconnect with an, an accomplished, esteemed young brother that um, I've known back since my my days, my school days, as, as Spike Lee once said <laughs> in college. Um, Emmy Award winning, you know, master um, uh, filmmaker. And uh, just a, a, a good, a good, a good brother from New York, Marquise Daisy. Good morning, brother. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, man. This is, uh, like you said, it's, it's been a while, man. It's been a while since we've uh, actually conversed, where we could actually see each other. So this is this is pretty neat, man. Um, yeah. Pretty, pretty yeah. I actually, we were just on this panel together for Williams, and I actually had no idea you were going to be on the panel so it was like a real <laughs> surprise <laughs> right. when people ask me to do panels i'm just like yeah hey, i'll do it like whatever right, right. because um i just want i just want to give them a yes so they can move on or whatever else they got to finish for the thing <laughs> you know so so like i'm gonna show up and you know um you know do my part but uh it's a trip because i'm gonna tell a quick story about uh uh, college, and then I'm gonna talk about seeing your name pop up, right? Yeah. Um, so you inspired me in college to build a hat collection. You had like the dopest, like fitted hat collection. <laughs> I walked into Marquise's dorm room. He had fitted caps all over the wall. It was like a like an artistic display, and I was like, oh, I need my fitted. I need to step up my fitted, get a hat game so I can be like Marquise. And then I ended up needing it because I ended up losing my hair. But before that happened, <laughs> I was chasing Marquise's hat game. Um, and uh, uh, I know you played sports in school when we were in school together uh, at Williams. But then I just, I just I would see like your name pop up in credits. Like I was watching the Randy Moss documentary. I had no idea. I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> so, um, so just so you can do a little bit of explanation, like what do you currently do right now that I want to get into your backstory after that? Yeah, so um, currently I am um, I'm a producer um, slash director um, for ESPN Films um, within a 30 for 30 uh, documentary department. Um, and essentially, you know, we're sort of like a niche group, um, as in obviously we're under the Disney ESPN umbrella um, but we're kind of like a specialized group in that we focus um, specifically on long-form documentaries. Um, so I've been there since uh, April of 2014. Um, and then prior to that, maybe we'll get into this, but prior to that, I was at uh, HBO Sports um, from the day that I graduated from Williams in 2005 um, all the way to 2012. So um, I was at HBO Sports for a while and uh, currently I'm at ESPN Films. Um, and I'm based out of uh, Bristol, Connecticut. Okay, okay. Yeah, I actually didn't know while we were at school together that you were in the filmmaking. Was this something that you had always done? Did you fall into it? Like, how did that start? My brother, like, I didn't know I was into filmmaking. <laughs> um, and I wasn't, you know, which is the uh, the actual answer to that, to that, the response to that. Um, you know, I was a history and political science major. So um, my big thing was always writing. Um, you know, I, I felt like um, from a sort of cerebral standpoint, that was the way that I was able to, um, um, that's the way I was able to sort of hold my weight 
Um, you know, I was one of those kids who was fortunate enough to go to boarding school and, you know, be exposed to that. But at the very root of it, you know, I was um, a kid from Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. So naturally, and I hate to say this, but naturally, you know, I was behind academically. Although I did spend, you know, four years in prep school, um, it just wasn't the same as, you know, coming from, you know, a background where all of these kids were in AP classes since they were in kindergarten, you know? Um, but my thing was, you know, I felt like I always had like this imagination um, and I was always able to sort of um, be, I, I think, a relatable person. Um, and I think at the root of that is storytelling, right? Um, so really, I graduated from Williams, you know, with a history and political science um, degree. And I thought I was going to be a teacher at a prep school. I thought I was going to, you know, work in admissions somewhere and help kids like myself, you know, take that path and be able to get to some of these prestigious um, New England schools. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, my mom got really sick and ended up passing away um, during the end of my uh, Williams um, career in 2005. And what that, that meant is that I was traveling back to New York City every single weekend in a, in the spring of uh, 2005. Um, and I eventually um, got connected with someone that I knew for a really long time who um, was a producer on Real Sports with Brian Gumble, which is a show out of HBO Sports. Um, and he was just like, like, you know, what's your, or do you have any interest in sports television? Now, I've, you know, I've considered myself to be an athlete and I was like, yeah, but I had no clue, you know, what that entailed. I didn't know anything about television. I didn't know tape stock. I didn't know what a digibator was. I didn't know anything. Um, but one thing that they did tell me, you know, in my interviews and to his credit, he did set me up with the right people to speak to, um, you know, in, in terms of interviewing. Um, but the whole thing was, you know, in sitting down and speaking with those guys, it was just kind of like, you know, clearly we feel like you're a smart person. Um, you have sports in your background and you went to Williams. So, you, you know, we feel, you feel, we feel like you could figure this out. And that's kind of how it happened. You know, I interviewed, they liked me, and I got a job as a production assistant working at HBO Sports with zero um, television background. And that's kind of how it started. And I started working on a show called Inside the NFL. Um, and that's how it all started, you know, in 2005. Yeah, yeah. As, 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 a, as a fan of some of these shows or just being like a fan of watching sports, I, I know I'm familiar with all these titles. Um, <laughs> I actually didn't know about uh, your mother passing. I'm sorry. What, what what ended up happening? You know, she um she ended up uh, getting cancer, um, and it was cancer of the esophagus. So that's one of those like very tough um, cancers, mm-hmm. um, and it all seemed to happen so quickly. You know, it was like she got sick, and then six months later, it was like very very sick, um, and then it was just kind of like you know, am I going to be able to graduate? Because to be honest with you, man, I wasn't studying for finals or anything like that. But luckily for me, um, I was able to um, to make my professors aware of what was going on. And, you know, my core group of friends at Williams, um, they would speak to my professors for me when I was going back and forth to New York and just kind of like letting them know what was going on. Um, can't even tell you if I passed my final exams. Um, but I, I feel like they knew what was going on and like, um, you know, there's that story. So, right. um, you know, that that's sort of like what happened. And it just all so happened so quickly, you know? Um, but it happened on Mother's Day in 2005. So that was like a double blow, 
Um, but in a lot of different ways, it was like somewhat of a blessing because, you know, I wasn't talking about moving to Massachusetts to teach. It was like, all right, now I'm going back to New York and I was able to be around my siblings and, um, you know, start my career there. So, um, you know, with, with every sort of tragedy, I'd like to look at it as like somewhere there, there's a silver lining of a blessing somewhere, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we recently just passed Mother's Day at the time of this recording. And um, yeah, I um, that was the year at, at 2005, I wasn't at school. Mm-hmm. They asked me to go away for a year. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got into some trouble. <laughs> so I unfortunately, um, yeah, because you know, when I was a freshman in 2003, like mm-hmm. you and uh, Kellen Williams were like some of the guys that I looked up to. Um, right on campus, Jeff Delaney, and uh, yeah, that, that gap year that I had. So I missed all of that. Um, yeah. And, and so you you get back to me. I didn't get into, how many siblings do you have? What was that? Oh, I, so I have um, I have two older brothers and a younger sister. Okay, so um, we're all right. two years apart. So we're all pretty close in, in, in proximity and age. Okay. Okay, I do want to get into Brooklyn, just cause like yeah. that, one of those places I wish I was from. It's like, it's like Brooklyn and New Orleans. Like, damn, I wish I could go. I like being from San Francisco, but you know, those are kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you start these conversations kind of based on your network. You end up as a PA at, inside the NFL, and now you're 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 in. Um, my perception of a PA isn't very glamorous. Like, what <laughs> what was happening? sort of that first year or so, like working on projects? I mean, it's probably what you think, um, except that, um, so, you know, when I started as a, um, as a production assistant at HBO Sports, you know, I started, like, as I mentioned, on a show called Inside the NFL. Um, now, it was kind of like being thrown to the wolves because, um, you know, in, Inside the NFL, I believe it was a 22-week show per football season. So that includes what, 15, 16 um, regular season games and then the playoffs and then the Super Bowl. Um, so it was a weekly show, as in we had to turn around like these five to seven minute features every week. Plus we had to produce an entire show. So what that meant is that, you know, um, you know, here I was a 22, 23 year old kid and I'm working with Dan Marino, Chris Carter, you know, um, Bob Costas and Chris Collinsworth every day. Um, because we would shoot the studio show in New York City. Um, so, you know, I was working with those guys every day and just sort of like formatting the show, just kind of like the show rundown. Um, but my main job was logging footage. So it was like, you know, the games would happen on Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. It was my job to make sure that, like, I was ordering those highlights from NFL Films, which is in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Um, you know, which is two hours sort of uh, south from New York City. So we would have to like messenger and and FedEx videos from them. We would get the videos and it was my job to kind of like go through and log it. And uh, this is where the touchdown is. This is where, you know, the first down, a sack, you know, have that stuff ready so that each week when we got into the edit room and let's say we would do um, a cover story is what we would call it, but it's a feature. Say we would do a feature on... um, Michael Vick, um, you know, I would sit there with the producer and work with them on, you know, here are the sound bites of the of the of the uh, the actual piece, and uh, 
they would turn to me and be like, what do you got? And then I'm pulling out the touchdowns, you know, all of the everything. Um, also the originally shot footage. So we would go to, um, you know, the towns or the home, you know, wherever someone is from, um, shoot that place up, get photos from them. And really it became this storytelling thing. Um, but I think for me, it was just kind of like, um, and I can't say that, you know, I was the, the, the greatest ever as a PA, but I feel like one of the things that I was able to bring that was kind of unique was this perspective, right? Like when you think of football players, who are you thinking about, especially at the skilled positions, you're thinking of kids who like are similar to me, you know, they come from urban backgrounds. Um, a lot of them don't grow up with a lot um, and really sport is their way out, is their vehicle out. And I think I was able to sort of like transcend a little bit or, or take like parts of my background and help um, instill them into these features that we were doing. So while there were two other PAs that were working on the show and they were great in their ways, I think that like my perspective was a little bit different in that, you know, I was just kind of like, you know, telling the producers that I was working with, we need to tell the story this way because, you know, I understand the pain of like, you know, Michael Vick growing up in Newport News, Virginia. Like I, I get like why he had to make it out. So I was able to like sort of like mesh that and it just became this sort of storytelling obsession um, that I, I think I was able to sort of develop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also have a, I have a real passion for stories. I know how powerful they are, you know? And um, yeah. And, and you got to see sort of the technical, there's nothing that you can translate personal experience. And uh, when you mention all those big names or those athletes in this big time network and yeah. new, like what was that like for you to insert your perspective? Did that, that was that easy? I mean, it was, um, it was, it was, it was challenging at times. I, I will give, you know, the folks of HBO sports credit. Um, it's particularly, you know, my former boss, this guy named uh, Brian, Hi uh, Brian Highland, who sort of was a mentor to me. Um, I mentioned there's a guy, Jason Hare, who actually just directed The Last Dance. He's a Williams guy. He was at HBO with me. He sort of really took me under his wing. Um, but to be honest with you, I mean, there really wasn't. It, there might have been two other black people um, in the whole department, um, especially at my level. It was me for a long time. Um, so that was like a little nerve wracking for a little bit. Um, you know, I, I did understand my worth and I understood um, that like, you know, again, I brought like a, a certain perspective that I thought was unique, um, but it can be intimidating, man, when you're in those pitch meetings and, you know, for people who don't know a pitch meeting for in television is really, um, usually it's like a weekly event where you meet with the staff of the show and you're just kind of like, all right, what are we going to do next? And everyone is throwing out their ideas. Um, and I felt like typically they would look at me for the black stories. You know, it's like, oh, you know, it's February. So let's do something on a historically black college. Um, so it was, it was a challenge for me to kind of like really like um, step outside of that identity, but not losing the fact that those are the stories that I want to tell. You know what I'm saying? So it's like a, it's like a fine line that like you need to play because you, you have to play that game but you also need to like not be boxed into a certain um, demographic, um, so to speak. So, um, you know, it, it was it was challenging at times, but I will say that like, um, you know, my voice eventually did get um, heard. Um, now I did leave HBO Sports. Um, it really wasn't, you know, it, we all got fired really. Um, you know, they 
got rid of the documentary department, all of us. And it's funny backstory with that because, you know, I was a part of the documentary department at the time. Ezra Edelman was a part of the um, um, documentary department. Ed Ezra Edelman did the OJ documentary. So he was oh. a part of that, actually. Who oh, left. yeah. Um, this one? Yeah, this guy, Joe Levine, who, mm -hmm. who's done a bunch of 30 for, uh, he's done at least one 30 for 30. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there were like eight of us. Um, I mean, that's a film in itself, like eight of us who were like, who have gone on to do um, some pretty unique and, and, and um, cool things. Um, but eventually, um, you know, we all were sort of forced to leave because, um, you know, HBO Sports was taking a new direction. It was really, they're going to focus on real sports and boxing. And it was really not, not going to be any more um, in-house production of documentaries. It was going to be sort of total acquisitions from the outside. Um, so that's kind of like what happened. You know, I was there for six and a half years and then all of a sudden it was like, oops, got to figure out what to do next. Mm -hmm. Um, but, I, but I will say within that group, um, and you know, it, it, that group of, um, storytellers, like we all have gone on to so far do some pretty unique things, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah. 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 So you, you got, you got some inside look at the industry, you got to cut your teeth, you got to build some relationships. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, and I mean, you know, when I when 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 I left HBO Sports, you know, I, I did a couple things, right? Um, I was like, well, there's really no going back now. Like, I can't really go back and try and be a teacher right now because, like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm leaving HBO Sports as a um, production assistant, mm -hmm. and I need to like be higher up on the totem pole to to be able to do something else. Um, so what I did was like, I was like, how can I get to where I need to get? So I was like, I'm going to cut the middleman out. That was my approach. I was like, everything that HBO Sports didn't trust me to do um, because of my position and my level, mm -hmm. I'm going to teach myself how to do those things. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I took, I might have had $7,000 saved up. Mm -hmm. I took four of it and bought a camera, um, mm -hmm. taught myself how to edit. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was just out there doing music videos. I, I was doing like... Um, I did like the the summer madness, like the the smack underground battle. <laughs> yeah. I, I directed all of that. Me and my boy G, like we shot, we direct. I I edited those battles, loaded Lux and all that stuff on my MacBook, not even a MacBook Pro, uh -huh. on a MacBook. Uh -huh. uh, but the I was Lux like Calico. Yeah, I, I edited that. I shot all that. Edited all of that. Oh yeah, girl, man, bars or something. You was there. Yeah, I was, I was there. I was, I, was <laughs> I edited all that stuff. And I'm I had no idea, yeah. Oh, yeah. But you should go back and watch it. Like, um, okay. you see, like, when it first starts, it's a huge graphic with me walking across the state. Like, I directed all of that, me and my boy. Wow. And I taught myself how to do all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I was editing. I was shooting music videos. I was on tour with Mary J. Blige for a little bit. I, I did a film called Smile, the documentary was about gun violence in Chicago. I just flew down there with one of my boys who I went to high school with and told the story of his brother who committed murder-suicide. And I was just teaching myself how to storytell, doing all of these things without anyone telling me to do it. Um, I was just like learning, how, again, cutting out the middleman, which was learning how to shoot. So I didn't have to necessarily hire anybody to shoot. Editing, teaching myself how to edit and then making these connections. Um, and then uh, I got a big um, break with my boy Jason Hare, who just did the, uh, the Last Dance. Um, he brought me on as a producer on a, um, Bernard King 30 for 30, Bernard King and Ernie Grunfeld. Uh, it's called Bernie and Ernie, and I produced that. Um, but really, um, you know, sort of behind the scenes, and Jason will tell you this, 
um, I acted sort of as a second director because he was very busy with a lot of um, projects. Um, and he just trusted me in the edit room. Um, so I was out shooting it. I was editing it in the edit room with an editor. Um, you know, um, I was producing it and directing it. I was doing a little bit of everything. Um, and uh, that was my, that was how ESPN um, really got wind of me. They were just kind of like, oh, who is this kid? You know, mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of like how they got to know who I was. Yeah, yeah. You, when you say cut out the minute, man, it reminds me of Nipsey. Yeah. <laughs> that's like, uh, you know, I was like, a, I was like a huge Nipsey Hussle fan. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I've often thought about, they're, they're like, whenever I hear people talk like that, I'm like, oh, we're part of the same tribe, you know? Right. Thinking about like ownership and building and, uh, and, and learning as we go, like, you know, figuring it out along the way. And um, you just brought up some big cultural moments though, that I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to like, I, I want to maybe talk later about that whole little likes battle and all of that. Cause I was just my guy too, man. Every time I bump into him, he's like, he called me Money Mark. Money Mark, what up? <laughs> yeah. Yo, yo, I quote Loaded Lux so often. Like, I started saying Beloved because of him. It's my guy. Said so, uh, it's healthy. <laughs> we'll talk to him, man. He's a good. You, you should bring him on your podcast. I would love that. I would love that. But like, we'll talk uh, about that. Yeah, yeah, but like the uh, so because when I saw you do the Randy Moss thing, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't want to just like I don't know. It's probably it's probably a ton of crazy stories you have between whenever that happened and Randy Moss, and, but uh, yeah. but. I interviewed uh, Jerry Rice uh, for my podcast. We did like nice. Macy's, this Black History Month thing, and I saw this. I saw this. Uh, it was at around the same time. I call this debate about who was the greatest of all time, and mm -hmm. um, you know, Terrell Owens, Jerry Rice, Randy Moss, like you know, and um, and I heard some great arguments for why Randy Moss was the greatest, which I can't really co-sign because <laughs> I'm biased from Francisco. <laughs> but. Um, but as an athlete, Randy Moss is, is is probably the greatest wide receiver like of all time. Like in terms of like what he can do on the field. Um, before we get to that, because uh, that was like that was dope that you put that on. So you 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 were building all this content, making relationships, learning stuff, and then ESPN thirty for thirty. Now thirty for thirty is probably like it's probably the most iconic like documentary um, programming that I've ever come across. You know, like growing up, I think the countdown stuff that NFL Films did was dope, but 30 for 30 was like, it was kind of like, um, it was so powerful. Like uh, when, when VH1 started doing Behind the Music, I remember that, like, it was just like, whoa, like, you know, like the one on Allen Iverson. Anyway, so, <clears throat> How did that start? Like, how did you go from that to 30 for 30? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, so basically, you know, as I mentioned, like, you know, I was uh, producing the, uh, the, the Bernard King 30 for 30, um, okay. but as a freelancer um, with my boy Jason Hare. Um, and we were editing in New York City um, at, a, at a, this edit house in New York City. And um, it's this edit house called Vidiots, where, um, you know, um, Jason and I, we had done so much work up until that point because we were at HBO Sports. And then he would hire me when I was at a, as a freelancer to do certain things, right? Um, so anyway, 
we were behind schedule. And Jason also did the uh, the Fat Five documentary. Um, so he was coming off the heels of that. Um, and we were behind schedule in terms of like um, when ESPN wanted to air it um, and where we were in production. So Jason really, you know, he leaned on me heavily to get this done. Um, so with that said, you know, some of the executives from ESPN would visit the, uh, the edit room once a week to just kind of like, you know, poke their heads in to kind of see if we were on schedule. And again, they would see me doing my thing. Um, so they offered me a job. I eventually took it. Um, and uh, I kid you not, my very first week at ESPN um, Films, um, my boss comes up to me. He's like, hey, we want you to do this uh, Randy Moss documentary because he knew what I could do based off of um, uh, the Bernard King film. Now, mind you, there had never been a staff person at ESPN who had directed a 30 for 30 ever. And I had just got hired. And it was like, we want you to do a 30 for 30. Now, with that said, the Randy Moss film didn't start out as a 30 for 30. It started out as a 30 minute like ESPN film. Mm. My boss was like, just go out and shoot it and see if you can make it good. So I was just going out, doing my thing, doing my thing. Not really telling anybody what I was doing. I was just out, just shooting. So I was out with Randy, shooting him, shooting all his people, going to his town, shooting everything. Me and my boy, um, G-Lock, who I um, hired to be the main camera on it. Um, it was just out there shooting it. And then eventually, like, my boss came to me. He was like, hey, how's it going? Like, you know, you're not really giving us any updates. And I'm like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, I think it's going to be really good. And my big boss at the time came to me and was like, hey, Marquise, like, um, can you make it really good? And I was like, oh, yeah, I think I can make it really, really good. He was like, all right, it's a 30 for 30. That was a decision right there on the spot. <laughs> so it went from an ESPN film to a 30 for 30 right there with that conversation. And I was like, oh, okay, let's get busy. So, um, you know, I, I just kept doing it and I, you know, I just kept reaching out to all of Randy's people and, um, and then we created that show. But essentially that whole concept was me. I mean, nobody told me what to do. Mm. Um, honestly, like I, the, the whole first cut of the film, I edited myself. Mm. So I was shooting it and I was editing it myself. And typically you hire an editor. Um, and then I showed the first version to my bosses and they were like, this is clearly a 30 for 30. We think it's going to be really, really good. And then I hired an editor to come on after I already had a rough cut. And then me and my boy, Jeff Riley, who's an editor out in Connecticut, we collaborated on bringing it to the finish line. Um, so that's kind of like how that happened. It was like, I was just out there doing my thing. You know, that whole Rand University idea at the 7-Eleven, again, you know, when I was telling you a little bit earlier that I would take things from my background. When I was out there and I was speaking to Randy's people and even speaking to him, and he was like, yeah, that's the university. That's the 7-Eleven. And I was blown away when he told me that. And I had read that before I had gotten down there. But I was like, this is fascinating to me. I was like, mm -hmm. you know, here you are. You have like all of these like high powered athletes coming out of this town. Um, but they only really go as far as high school. And they look at the 7-Eleven as their university. Like that's the indoor stop. Randy was like the only person. And Jason Williams, you know, White Chocolate was his point guard in high school, but, you know, for the rest of those guys, like, standing in front of that 7-Eleven, like, that was their university. That's why they called the 7-Eleven Rand University. And the town just happened to be called Rand, and his name is Randy Moss. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I was fascinated by that. And I was like, you know, that, to me, is the corner store in Bed-Stuy. That's like those OGs in the neighborhood who, you know, when I was young, I used to go to the parks and look at these dudes, and they were dead nice. Mm -hmm. 
But then by the time I get to high school, those dudes who are dead nice, they're not in the NBA, they're standing in front of the corner store. So when they told me that whole um, 7-Eleven ran university thing, I was like, that's gonna be the name of the film. And that's the way I'm gonna tell the story. It's just kind of like about, you know, these sort of divergent paths, like people start off sort of equal. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a country that we live in, if you got talent, they'll figure out a way for you to get out. And if you don't have enough talent, you're going to be right there in front of that 7-Eleven. That's your university. And that's why I decided to tell that story the way that I told it. Mm-hmm. So when you, I mean, the, the Rand University documentary was like, um, talk about like it being finished and then it going public and like what that was like for you internally. Like, uh, is it going to be well received or were you like, I was confident that like the story was really good. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, n- naturally I was like, if people don't like this, like they just don't get it. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> but then like at the end of the day, I was like, you know, what if people don't get it? Like, what if people are like, I don't get why you're calling the 7-Eleven, a, you know, a, a university. Like there was a risk that people just didn't get it. They didn't get that. Like that was like where people went, like that was, that was your prize for being an all American in high school is standing in front of the 7-Eleven smoking, smoking and drinking. Like that, that's where you went. And that's what the kids looked up to. So there was a risk in, in telling a story the way that I told it. Um, but when it aired, also in the back of my mind, like I knew I had like a trump card in that I had Randy Moss. Like that's a big name. So people were gonna like watch it. Um, but when it aired, man, it just got like overwhelming love, man. Like it, people really dug it. And like, that was just a, um, that was just validation for all of the hard work that I had put in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things you got to remember is I left HBO Sports as a production assistant. I was never an associate producer or, you know, I kind of skipped over the producer position mm-hmm. and got hired at ESPN as a producer, but directed a 30 for 30. So I really did cut the middleman out. Like I was never an associate producer. Um, I, I didn't go to another network and become um, a producer or associate producer before getting to ESPN. So like I kind of like skipped a couple titles because I taught myself how to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the remarkable part of the story is kind of like, like I just, you know, I, I, I didn't take the conventional route to, to where I needed to be. Yeah. When you say overwhelming love, just talk a little bit about what that means, like numerically or reception, like what is it? Yeah, I mean, at the time, it was um, certainly top five 30 for 30s in viewership. Mm-hmm. Um, and then since, you know, OJ came around and blew everything out the, out the mm-hmm. in the last dance recently. But at the time, it was, I think it was like top five viewership. Um, and then also, you got to remember, like, this was 2014 um, when Rand University came out. So it was really like the explosion of the social media um, realm. Like people were consuming content in a way that we hadn't seen it before. So the film was on and LeBron James was tweeting about it. And you know that was a big deal. Whereas like before, like you didn't really get that critique from those big name athletes. Um, so it, it became very um, visible and people were talking about it. And it was like, you know, it was like little old me from Williams College who made that film. <laughs> uh, that was pretty cool, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're like the, what What does that do as you're trying to, you know, navigate the industry? Because as a viewer, like, I don't I don't really know who's behind the films, right? Unless it's, 
Um, I was proud to see a name on it, right? Because I because we went to school together. But uh, you know, like I know there are certain people in Hollywood. It's like, oh, this is Quentin Tarantino. This is Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. This is like whoever. But internally within the industry, like what happens in sports is like how the doors are like. What, what what's yeah? I mean, it it puts you in that room. It puts you right in that discussion. You know, like at that point, like now it's like, you know, here's a young African American filmmaker who. Um, I can do what you guys can do. Like, you know, I was afforded that opportunity and I ran with it, um, but it put me right in that discussion. Um, and, and, you know, and since then I've worked with Spike Lee very hand in hand. Like I did, I did a film called Black Hoosiers um, about uh, Oscar Robinson that I worked, you know, Spike Lee was the executive producer on that series. Um, and, you know, so I'm in a room with Spike. You know, recently I just did, um, the Michael Vick documentary that I produced, and I was working with a guy named Stanley Nelson, who is Spike Lee number two, you know, in the documentary world. I mean, he did, you know, when we were at Williams, I took a, um, like an elective, what do you call it? Like the, you know, that whole month when you take like, uh, yeah. Um, and I took um, like a filmmaking, like a black exploitation um, filmmaking thing. And I think we watched the Emmett Till documentary and Stanley Nelson directed that. And here it is, fast forward X amount of years later, you know, he and I were doing a film together. Um, so really, it, you know, it, it puts you right in that discussion. Um, it, it puts you right in that, in that room. Um, and, and, the, uh, and, and the task is to really just try and keep knocking down doors. Mm-hmm. And so, you, so you mentioned a few films that you've done since Rand University. So this is 2014, mm-hmm. sort of been on other projects. Oh yeah, and I mentioned the Emmy, right? And so, uh, so what was that for? Rand University? Yeah, it was for it was for um, you know um, best documentary director um, on a, and, and, and you know then the thirty for thirty brand um, one as a whole um, that year. Um, but I was the only director as a as a ESPN and, and, and um, staff person, and my film aired within that calendar year. So, um, you know, again, like, you know, I, I was in a room, you know, we, I, I have an Emmy for best director. Um, what is it? What is that? What, how do you get that? Like, what, what was the, when did you get notified? Like, what was the whole? No, it, it was, it was what you see on TV, man. It was the, uh, it was the sports Emmys awards. Um, and we're in there and, you know, 30 for 30 wins. And, you know, every director that year wins an Emmy, you know? And I think, I don't know, that year we might've had six films something like that at Rand University was one of them. Um, so, you know, we're at the Emmys and I'm like, yo, this is kind of dope, you know, we won an Emmy. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I have a second one um, for another film as well. You know, we were, I was also at the, uh, um, at the NAACP Awards for Rand University as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough to win like a Kalithoscope um, Journalism Award um, for a film that I did called Tigers United on Michael Sam. Um, the, you know, former um, University of Missouri um, linebacker who came out um, as homosexual prior to, um, I believe, the 2013 draft. I did a film on him. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 been a, it's been a really nice ride so far. Yeah, yeah. So, like, what, 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 what does that do when you get the Emmy? What does that do to your dating life? Oh, man, it just kind of... Like, uh, <laughs> Uh, it was uh, it was interesting because 
I mean, naturally, I'm kind of like an introverted dude. Like, I don't, you know, like, I'm one of those dudes who, like, I've been, quote unquote, friends with people for years. Uh-huh. And they still have no clue, like, exactly what I do. So I'm not like one of those people who kind of, like, just bigs myself up. Uh-huh. Um, but there have been instances where, like, you know, uh, people that I've uh, have met or have dated who have actually have been uh, fans of, like, the work that I do. So that's kind of a cool perk. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly not, you know, the number one draft pick of a, of a sport. <laughs> Um, but it's pretty cool. It's a, yeah. it's pretty cool when people um, appreciate. Because um, you got to look. I mean, the the work that I do is very unique in that, like, you know, you work on something so hard for a year or so, and then the world could see it. Whereas, like, you know, if you're crunching numbers somewhere, you know, you're very important to the economy and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But not a lot of people get to see your work. You know, they just kind of, like, assume that it's a part of a system. Whereas, like, when you're doing film, like people actually get to sit down and like watch what you do uh, versus some other industries. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I have, I've been thinking a lot about, um, I stopped, I actually stopped watching sports frequently because I, uh, I got too emotionally involved in the outcomes, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, Oh, this is stupid. <laughs> and, you know, I have a bad day and, right. and I spend this time and, uh, and you know, but the power of sports is like I was trying to put my finger on it. Like, damn, like why? Why is this so powerful? You know, yeah. and um, and the story. I think. I mean, competition. Like, we it's a lot about who we, how we're made up. That um, you probably have way better insights than this on I do. But it's kind of like an open question for me because it's it's influence and impact. It's just like undeniable. Like when you watch all the all the buzz about. I don't have a TV at home. All the buzz about the last dance, I haven't seen any of it. Right. It's constantly being talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and when you think about when people try to like relate what's happening, they often rely on movies or right. somebody in sports story, you know? Um, so it's like, it's so incredibly powerful. And you yeah. have an opportunity to really um, shape culture, inform mindsets move people because of the skills you have, you know, that's a superpower. Yeah. I mean, it's very cool, but also there's a huge responsibility that comes along with it. Right. Like that's the part that like gets um, lost sometimes in translation, which is like when you're doing these long form definitive, and we like to consider what we do definitive documentaries as in the evergreen, as in 30 years from now, when you're thinking about Randy Moss, you're going to watch my film. That's a huge responsibility because like those decisions that are made about what stories to tell and how to tell those stories come from me. Like they don't come from anywhere else. Like, and that's a huge responsibility. Like, you know, I have someone's legacy to a certain extent in my hands. Um, So I think that's part of it. I think that's part of maybe what um, interests you. And when you watch these things, because it's kind of like, you know, getting into the crux of someone else's life. Um, it's just kind of like, you know, finding out those nuggets about like things that you didn't know. Um, but there's a huge responsibility that comes along with that. Um, and I would just say sort of what you were hinting at, I think a little bit earlier is like, you know, what is it about sports that draws us to it? Like that makes us so emotional. I think for me, I guess I've never really thought about it this way until I heard you speaking. But I think part of it is because like, 
along the way somewhere, we all had hoop dreams and that could be any sport, right? Like we all thought at one moment that we would, you know, go professional in something other than what we're doing right now. Um, and, you know, presumably in a sport. Um, so you kind of like live vicariously through these athletes. Um, and you know that like you never really got to the level that they are at now, but you see like a little bit of yourself in them. Like, damn, like, how did they take that next step that I wasn't able to take? And I think that's for me, like, you know, when I'm watching sports, I'm just kind of like, you know, like I'm amazed by what LeBron James does because I can't even imagine the work that he had to put in because I know the work that I tried to put in, you know, and you don't even come close to what these guys have done. So for me, I think that's kind of like what's really cool about it. Yeah, no, I think I think I think you're right, and um, and uh, yeah, the written word stories. Like, so you, you've been in the documentary space. You worked on some feature length films. It sounds like yes. Um, what's what's sort of you know what's what's coming up? Like it's 2020. We're in we're in shelter yeah, I mean, place. <laughs> I mean, it, it took me. Um, it took us a little bit over a year to get the Michael Vick film done, and that was four hours of approaching four hours over the course of two nights. Um, so, you know, I'm just trying to find the next one. You know, right now we have, um, we're going to air this film on Lance Armstrong, just, just approaching Sunday. So I'm kind of like peripherally working on that. Like I'm editing some stuff at home and just kind of getting it ready for um, broadcast. But I'm, I'm already thinking about the next story that I'm going to be able to tell, like what that subject is going to be. Um, and we'll talk a little bit offline about some ideas that I have. <laughs> okay. I think I might have my fingers on something that could be pretty cool. Um, so, but that's what it is, right? It's like, you know, you, you finish your film, you get to breathe for a half second, and then it's like, all right, what's next? Mm-hmm. You know, like, how do, how do you keep, keep your finger on the pulse and, and keep people um, interested and keep people entertained, really? Because that's what this is, right? It's like, that's what television is. Like, no one's going to keep watching something if they're not entertained. Right. So there's there's that sort of dichotomy. It's like keeping someone entertained, but also telling something of substance. Like, have you ever watched something? And I presume the answer is yes, but have you ever watched something and it looks beautiful? Like you're watching it on screen and you're like, man, the way they shot that and like, it's beautiful, but the story sucks. <laughs> and you're like, yo, but, but it looked dope. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. But then on the contrary, you see something that like is not shot so well, but you're just like into it. And you're like, that's great storytelling. Mm-hmm. Like, they might not have used the best cameras and all that stuff, but like, I get it. Like, I'm into that, you know. And that's what filmmaking is. It's just kind of like how you strike that balance. Yeah, that's yeah. music videos too, right? Like, you think about, um, you think about like old Michael Jackson videos and stuff like like that. That was storytelling. You know what I'm saying? Like, and it looks cheesy to us now, but that's storytelling, like Thriller and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, now you look at some of like you know, music videos, and a lot of it is like fluff, right? It's like, it looks pretty, mm-hmm. but the lyrics suck. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. the same thing with film. It's like, how do you make something look pretty and make it interesting? That's the challenge, I think. Right. Yeah, I never knew that, um, like, the people people didn't consider belly well shot, or it wasn't like, I, I heard something about the film quality of belly, and I've mm-hmm. seen it so many times. You know, yeah. watch that movie like over and over and over again. Um, I mean, Belly is one of those films. I think Belly was cutting edge, man. I think 
thing. I think the way that Hype Williams shot that was dope. Like mm -hmm. the silhouettes. He wasn't afraid yeah. to shoot black people dark. You know what I'm saying? Like you look at some of those shots, it's like, you know, he'd have the, the main light on one side of the face. On the other side, he'd just have like natural light. So like it would, be, it would fall off. So like you have black people sitting in the room and it's like shadows. Before, like you look at the Cosby show, they were afraid to shoot like that way to make black people darker. Right. You know what I'm saying? And Hype wasn't afraid to do that. He was like, this is dope silhouettes. Like use black skin, like shoot it mm -hmm. and like make it dope. But you look at the Cosby show, it's all like, I think like it's all lit from the front. So there are no shadows. Everybody looks like, you know, it, it, there's no real depth to it. Now with that said, the Cosby show is great. Like it's cutting edge, but just in the, the, um, the, uh, just, just in a visceral sort of, um, way that it was shot. I think belly was up there, man. Like it, it was so dope. And that, that, that was like the, um, the explosion of music videos back then. Like he was shooting, videos that look like movies, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Visceral is the right word because the way that he, definitely the way that he portrayed some of the violent scenes too. It just yeah. felt like, like when they were all in the basement and he was shooting at the ground. And crazy. It's crazy. Jumped out the roof and they were like, and he got shot and kind of pulled over and like, you know. Yeah. And when Method Man was in the club shooting, up, it was like all that was just like. Crazy. I mean, go back and watch, um, Go back and watch the Loaded Lux Calico battle. Okay. Like that was a decision that we made to shoot it that way. Yeah. We had what we call Kino Flow lights. And we like so we wanted to make Summer Madness 2 look like the eight mile, like the the uh, uh, okay. uh, Eminem film uh, uh -huh. movie. Mm -hmm. Um and how everybody was shot in, in, in some scenes they were shot in shadows and stuff. That was the inspiration. Like me and my boy G, like we talked about it. And we're like, let's make it look like Eight Mile, and then we put our own spin on it. Now, if you watch um, URL Smack stuff prior to that, nothing looked like that. Mm. Now you look at it, and everyone wants to make it look the way that we did it, because mm. it was like Hype Williams induced and uh, in inspired, and you know that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that battle so much. Yeah, it was nuts. Yeah, I mean, I edited that right on my couch in Harlem. That's yeah. awesome, bro. That's awesome. It took a couple of days to do it. It's so I had like a pass machine. It took like forever to render the files. It was it was crazy. But Matt called me up and he was like, "Yo, let's do it." And I was like, "Let's do it." So. Yeah, the way you caught the emotion. Yeah, man, you did a great job, man. Yeah, it was cool, man. That was uh, that was one of those projects, man. That like. And Puffy and Buster was there. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, as I'm editing that, right? Uh -huh. Like, we kept having, like, these these uh, these uh cutaway shots of, like, Buster and Q-Tip was up there, too. Okay. Um, and every time that, like, Lux would say, like, a dope line, I was like, yo, let me find a cutaway. Let me find, like, their reactions. Mm -hmm. Then you see Buster doing this thing. Like, I was doing that on purpose, like, you know, hitting the lines. And I was trying to give Calico the same type of treatment. His lines weren't just like as impactful, but right. we try to keep it um, as equitable as equitable as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you had a hard job because that was definitely <laughs> one sided. Funny story. I mean, um, so I had I didn't know Lux before that, um, but I was living in Harlem at the time, and um, so that battle, like 
did numbers. It was trending. It was like number two or, or number one trending on Twitter at the time. Um, and I was walking down 125th Street, like near the Apollo one day. And Lux, he, he plays chess on the streets a lot mm. uh, on 125th. And I saw him out there. So he was playing chess. And I was like sitting there looking. And uh, he turned his head and looked at me. And I was like, yo, what up, Lux? And he was like, oh, what's going on? And I was like, yo, I'm Marquis Daisy. And he was like, oh, what up? And then we started, got really close from that because he knew the work that I did on his battle that like really helped him, um, I would say, take that next step um, mm -hmm. in his career at that at that point. Mm -hmm. um, that's so that's how like me and him started to like really talk. I just ran up on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, so, so, um, uh, you're, career as a filmmaker has been really dope and I, I, I can't wait to see what comes up next. Um, you mentioned that you, uh, you're one of four, you grew up in, in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. um, we met at Williams. Uh, before, we, before we close out, just because I think it's important that um, people kind of hear a little bit about this, like just, yeah. just talk a little bit about coming up in, in Bed-Stuy and what it was like for you and how you broke out to it at boarding school? Yeah, man. I mean, it was it was it was what you think it was. I mean, it was rough. Um, you know, I mean, because I grew up in Bed Stuy when it was Bed Stuy. Like it wasn't um, this like Bed Stuy now is nice. Like it's gentrified. Like their condos, um, for lack of a better way to say this, like there are white people there now. Mm -hmm. um, growing up, there were there were no white people. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was just us. Um, and it was just all of us. I mean, I would say 95% of our parents um, were, um, you know, on um, public assistance. Like we were all on welfare. Um, there was like hardly any home ownership. Um, you know, you got to remember, like, I, and I'm talking about the end of the 90s. Like that was the explosion of crack cocaine. So like a lot of us grew up in situations where our parents were getting high. Um, it was rough, um, and, and that's where we grew up around. You know, I was lucky in that, and it's so funny because like I just I've gotten lucky a lot of times, you know. Um, but I was lucky in that, like you know, I was going to go to one of the local um, junior high schools in the area, which you know, it was in. You, you look at do the right thing, South Pizza, uh -huh. right across the street, pretty much is the elementary school I was going to go to, like right across the street. <laughs> okay. Um, that's where, that's where I was going to go. And then, um, you know, a friend of the family was connected with some white folks who weren't from Bed-Stuy, who were like, there's a specialized school in Bed-Stuy that, like, um, you should consider. And I, like, fought it for a while. And eventually I ended up going there. Um, and that was probably the first decision that I made that, like, um, it, it was sort of, it was kind of like a magnet um, specialized school. Um, and then that helped me later on get into the boarding school thing. Um, so I kind of got lucky. Um, but, you know, a lot of people that I grew up with, um, you know, it's that old saying, right? Either dead or in jail or, you know, or you can't, you, you became a, you became a pro athlete or a rapper. Mm -hmm. you know? Or you, you got lucky and you're doing something pretty cool like myself. Um, but it's, 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 you know, it's not that many of us. Um, that were able. Now, with that said, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people that I grew up with who are doing pretty well for themselves. Um, but I, I think it's all relative to like what that look, what doing well looks like to um, to larger America. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, saying someone's doing well, it's all relative. Right. When I say doing well, I mean doing better than we did growing up. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. And, and now you're a father of two. And yes. Yeah. So um, as we close out, like, uh, well, I mean, being being a parent, you know, like, what is what is the lifestyle? Like, how do you how you think about instilling values in your children and all? That? I mean, it's beautiful, man. It's beautiful just watching. Uh, you have three year old twins, a boy and a girl, Marquise and Ava. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's beautiful, man. It's just I I just look at the way that they're growing up. It's just so different from how I grew up. Um, but I think that like I, I think that. The, the biggest thing that like I want to instill in them is just kind of like this is this is this is this is your opportunity, right? Like I'm not gonna like I'm gonna try and push my son to play basketball, and I'm gonna keep him away from football as much as I can. Um, but it, it's really gonna be like hopefully what they want to do. Like for me, it was like man, I gotta get out of bed style, so I gotta pick up this basketball. You know what I'm saying? For them, I don't want them to have that pressure. Like I want them to know that like you know. Hopefully they'll be able to go to very decent schools and have um, opportunities that I didn't have, um, and we'll be able to just sort of like really um, control their own destiny. Whereas like for me, I felt like to a certain extent it was like um, you know I gotta use um, you know athleticism, I gotta use um, my likeness and you know my social ability to get up out of here. You know what I'm saying? Because like it, it's tough. So I, I would say that, you know, that was sort of like a portrait of um, what the journey was like for me um, and how, you know, it's, it's just so different for my kids. Yeah. So it's cool. Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you, Marquise Daisy, award-winning filmmaker. Yes, sir. A man of the, the cut out the middleman tribe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. Building legacies, telling stories. Um, inspiring, inspiring, you know, the world with, with your work. So um, appreciate the time today. And uh, I'll put all of his, I'll put links to all of his, uh, his films in the description box. Thank you all for checking out Marquise. And we'll see you next time.